Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events here in Dubai. The team that put together the amazing events including the likes of Tony Robbins, Nick Vujicic, Prince EA and many many more. On today's episode I've got a really very special guest. So I'm not telling you anything because it's going to be a great conversation. Cue the music. Let's get on with it. Well, who have we got today? I'm really, really excited to be able to share with you somebody who I've been following for an enormous amount of time. I think she's kind of like really big and really cool. And I think she talks in really wonderful ways and teaches just so much. But clinical psychology, Dr. Shafali, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure. You have done loads and loads of interviews. You're all over YouTube, social media. But tell me from the very beginning, how on earth you got into this line of work? Well, I think... um uh, it was always a passion to understand the human mind. And I began meditating at a young age. I was studying psychology. I wanted to write. I began writing. Um, my book got published. And I really think it was after Oprah picked it up, uh, in all honesty, that I got some platform and greater publicity. And then people asked me for interviews. And you, then you just... Um, and speaking is my thing. Like, I love to teach. I, lo- I think I'm a teacher, really, at yeah. heart, a writer and a teacher. Those would be my two descriptions of myself. So that's just what I do naturally. You know, so whether I do it one-on-one or I do it on a wide scale, it doesn't matter to me. It's just that's what comes naturally to me. And so how old were you when you started to be interested in psychology? Oh, I've been studying. I studied psychology in India. And then when I came so I did my bachelor's in psychology at 21 years old. I came here, did a master's, then I did a PhD in clinical psychology. So that it was always what I just knew I wanted to do. And when I came here, uh, here as in America at 21, yeah. I really started meditating and understanding the mind on that level, on, a, on an observer, metaphysical, cellular level. And uh, that really is actually the bedrock of my entire worldview and uh, the way I try to teach and live my life. The psychological is important, but I really think the pathway to liberation of the mind must come through a meditation practice. See, meditation and me. It's interesting you talk about it and I I think for a lot of us, we think of meditation in yoga pants and in a, sitting there in unusual poses. Yeah. But for me, I think when I run, do I, can I sure. meditate when I run? I absolutely meditate when I run. You can, you, medit- it's me- you can be meditative technically all day long when you eat, when you run, when you shower. I mean, it's all the time. It's bringing presence to your here and now, bringing your presence. So entering the present moment, realizing I'm here now, I'm with this person now, and what's coming up for me now, and bringing all your awareness into the present moment. That's what meditation is. Okay, so when I'm running, I can't listen to music, I can't listen to a podcast. It's I just it, It's a play, well, I, I can't, yeah. because it's, it gives me a chance to gather my thoughts yeah, and start to compartmentalize like yeah. everything yeah. And, and structure everything. Yeah. And then I, I finish a run and I feel 
it's almost feel like a, my brain feels like it's it did a workout. Organized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. just it's at a place yeah. now where I think you go on with the day and and, and I'm, I'm I'm far more structured. Yeah. Before I run, I find myself in a in a bit of a complicated place yeah. because I don't know what to prioritize and stuff. So yeah, yeah maybe that's. Yeah, that's, you're, that's you're allowing whatever comes up in your mind to come up. You're paying attention to it because you're really running. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not just going with your thoughts. You're paying attention. If I had to summarize, you're you're watching your thoughts and then they they prioritize themselves because you're the watcher. You're the witnesser. You're on your breath. You're physically in your body in that moment, and you're organizing. You know, versus ruminating and going on the train and running with the train of your thoughts. You're actually a step away, and that space uh, between yourself and your thoughts that's the meditative space okay you've written loads of books haven't you well three three books no, I don't think I've written one words. and it was a labor of love it <laughs> took 18 months yeah did, did you remember writing your first book do I remember writing it yes how long ago was your first book uh, maybe now 10 years ago and when yeah. you first had to sit and think about writing a book yeah it's a I, lot. It is, it's isn't overwhelming. It? Yes. Yeah, where, where do you start? Where do you start? The first page is the hardest. You yeah. Know? Even though that first page never ends up as the first page anyway. Yeah. But it sets the tone. You know, it's like, how do I enter? It's, it's how I give a talk. It's the first, how am I entering this? And I don't agonize over these things anymore, but I used to agonize over them a lot. It's difficult. People glamorize the writing process. They don't realize how much ardor and persistence and loneliness it can involve you know yeah yeah it's alone i wouldn't say lonely but you are alone no one can help you you have to do it yourself you know yeah it has to come from within you uh no one is writing it for you so the editor yeah. can do a great job but it really is a labor of love it's just pulling stuff from inside you and and then convincing a publisher that what you're what you're writing about yeah. is something that people should want to should want to consume very difficult yes. do you do you do you find yourself um reading or with a paperback, do you find yourself looking at a Kindle or do you like no, to listen read, to an audio No, I can only read. I'm not an auditory um, okay. reader. I'm not a screen. I'm old fashioned, you know, just a book. Okay. I have to have a book. And do you get that cramp in the inside of your thumb sometimes where you're holding the book? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I always find that. And then I need to underline, I need to write. It's, it's a distracting, like, what should I read? Should I process? Should I go off and write on my own? So when I'm in a writing mode, if I'm writing my book, I typically don't read anyone else's work for like the, maybe a year before, during. I won't read anyone else's. I don't okay. want to get influenced. I don't want to get biased. I want it to be as authentic a process as possible. So, and do your books? Do your books come from an idea that then then gathers pace with time, or does it come out of maybe frustration uh, that that people don't necessarily get yeah. that side of things as much i mean yeah, on, yeah look, both, if anyone both. doesn't know who you are right now then then they're, they're, they're living yeah. under a rock somewhere aren't they i, well, I don't know i yeah. don't feel people know me at all really yeah i was shocked that you knew me or the her highness knew me yeah i'm very surprised by these things i live under a rock i think we i live we, under Alicia? a rock legit legit we know <laughs> Yeah, I, well, you, I we get all surprised. Yeah. They were like, you, you I live you under got... a rock completely. I'd have no idea. But I'm not invested in that. I'm so, so always shocked and surprised. Um, but I think writing is, is really about expression. So you have to first uh, reach a state of having an idea to share. Mm-hmm. So till that gets crystallized in me, I don't dare to say I have a book. So I wait, you know, I wait, I wait, I wait for the idea to crystallize. Mm-hmm. And then when it does, I, I can just go with it, you know. I, I've been you, lucky not to have to look for publishers. 
I, I get, I get, I, you know, I get an open entry to publishers. So that anxiety is not there. How do I convince someone? I've never had to convince anyone. You know, it's easy, but I have to be convinced. So that takes time, you know, and I wait for it to be a very organic, clear vision. That takes years, mm. and, but the writing for me takes, you know, it a few months. But the the till the vision is crystallized, that's what takes time. Hmm. Yeah, I think you need courage to write your first book as well. Because oh, huge! There's, it's quite daunting. How dare you write? Like yeah. what audacity? Who are you? Who are yeah. you? <laughs> Those are the voices yeah. of the inner critic. You know, who are you to write a book? You know, it's been written, and really every book has already been written, some version or the other. Yeah. So who are you to think that your idea is so amazing? You know, and. So those voices I've, lear I've, I've learned are my ego to keep me down, to keep me dim. So I've learned now to ignore, ignore those voices because I'm not invested in anyone reading my books anymore because I know that they will. So. But also, <laughs> also because I have to write, right? It's, I, and when I teach people to follow their passion, I teach them, don't look for the audience. You don't think of your audience, even though the popular mythologies think of your audience. Mm -hmm. I, but I don't go that way. I go... It's about your creative expression. If you keep wondering who your audience will be, you'll go crazy. You'll shift your tone for that per imaginary person. You'll shift your tone for that person. You'll, you know, sell yourself. Don't do that. Writing is very personal. It's about you doing this for yourself. You're writing for you and for your five best friends. You know, that's it. And for your kids, maybe. That's it. And you're lucky if they read it. So ultimately, it has to appetize you. It has to be a love affair that you and the book have between yourselves and then you are detached from the outcome you know did you it's really, really relish it you say yeah. this you know because yeah. we did an experiment with you yesterday that okay. you don't know about no i don't and we one of my really good friends works with artificial intelligence okay and he asked me if he'd like to take the content that my guests write yeah. <laughs> and then the content of the, any interview I do with them and see if the, the, the artificial intelligence, the machine learning is telling anything different. Wow. Okay, so it did some assessment on you. Would you like to know what it yeah. is? Yeah. Okay, so there's a company called Searchy, which is actually a, 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 an artificial, an AI-based recruitment consultancy. Okay. First company of their kind in the world. And they're, they're working all over the world to help companies identify the right candidates for business because human beings have bias. Yes. And so if um, I interview you for a job, maybe, yeah. um, I meet you and I think you look great. So I'm going to start looking for other things subconsciously that I like about yeah, you. Yeah, the halo effect. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and vice versa. Yeah. So you come for an interview and, and yeah. maybe I don't know, you say something that doesn't really work with my sense of humor right. at the beginning. And I think, right. oh, or not, one thing not. I say off and that's it. All my credentials yeah. can go off. And all, yeah. and all of us. So, yeah. so, and that bias exists. Yeah. And so it's very hard to recruit the right people in yes. business. Yes. And so there's lots of, you know, there's lots of studies on this kind of stuff, right. but whilst there's bias, there will, there will never be the perfect fit for sure. a role. Sure. And, and the CEO who's probably, when we think about the different personality types, the CEO of most companies is typically a driver. Right. And so he's impatient. And right. so he wants to get through the right. process as, as quickly as possible mm -hmm. in most cases. Mm -hmm. So um, how is he choosing the right person? Yeah. Um, and so what, what, we, what we have is a piece of software. They have a piece of software. And so I'll, I'll share this with you. Yeah. Okay, it's really interesting. And you can see, see what you think of it because literally... He contacted me yesterday. Was it yesterday or this morning? Um, Harvey. So then, what did you? What did you? So he's going to he's going to take this interview. Oh. And he's going to put it through the system. Nice. Okay, as well to assess it. I'll send you the information yes. after it's done. Yeah. Okay. So. So so let me just make sure that you understand. Okay. 
Yeah, this is one of my buddies. Okay, so it occurred to me this morning to run your guests through our machine. Thought that if there's anything particularly strong or weak, we could help you to frame questions that could get good reactions from them. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, yeah? Um, we did it with Donna Benton, who was one of mm -hmm. my guests. The machine told us she struggled with innovation. Um, so we did a bit around her lack of confidence making the entertainer a digital app. So it went from being a book to a digital mm -hmm. app. Thought uh, it might be of interest to see what uh, we get with your guests, especially Gary V, Grant, etc. Thinking about it, I'm going to do it anyway and send you the results. There's bound to be something there useful and not completely obvious. I thought, you know, great, thanks mm -hmm. for reaching out. Yeah, I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. Um, he said, who else do you have? Um, I said we could do both, but makes sense to prioritise. Um, okay, Dr. Shafali's tomorrow. <laughs> this is how he's responded. <laughs> <laughs> you ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number one, values diplomacy and searches for win-win solutions. Number two, motivated by competition. Number three, enjoys to change people's minds. Feels very comfortable presenting in a formal environment. And you can just say yes or no, Adam, it's up to you. Prefers to let other people talk and could feel uncomfortable with too much attention. This one might be nice to drill in on. How does she balance her natural desire to let other people have the spotlight with her role as a presenter? And how does she manage that conflict? I thought it was interesting. Um, a natural problem solver and leans into analysis. Um, likes complicated theories. Excels at understanding how historical events influence and affect present situations. Probably why she does what she does so well is what his comment is. Likes to create stability. Uh, I've not watched many of her videos, but I bet she defaults to suggesting people implement systems and rules to fix or address the problems they're encountering. Doesn't, this is interesting. Doesn't seem to enjoy networking, which ties in with her letting others take the spotlight. I wonder how she's balanced that with her career progression. That, that is so correct. Is I mean, it? I hate to say yes, because it could just be a Chinese horoscope, you know, but it could work for you, it could work for me. This is literally from there. It's exactly what he the wrote. Number two, it could be true, um, but this is the most, um, doesn't seem to enjoy networking, which ties in with her letting others take the spotlight. I wonder how she's balanced that with her career progression, really values openness and authenticity, places huge value on other people's ability and appetite to learn. I mean, 100%. Really? 100%. That's really, really... I don't know whether I'm motivated by competition, but I can't say I'm... Because I don't have competition in my life yeah. right now. But if I did, I could be fueled by it. But I don't have competition. I mean, I mean, not to sound like, oh, I mean, but I, I don't... I don't Moi. No, 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 I, didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I just mean like, you know, I'm not... Who am I going to compete with? Like, I don't know, another author? Like... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know whether I'm motivated by that, but I'm Isn't definitely... interesting? It's amazing. Good, good uh, software program. I like it. Okay. Yeah, and it goes deep. It goes to deeper stuff yeah. that typically people don't talk about. You know, it's not just a, a Zodiac reading, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, this is genuine stuff. Mm -hmm. So what, what happens is instead of companies receiving CVs... Yes. And then, yes. you know, a piece of paper, everybody has to go through a video interview. Yeah, how cool. They're asked a bunch of questions on the video interview. And let's say that you, you're, you're offering... If, if you put a job on LinkedIn yeah. here, you'll get a thousand responses. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with a thousand? How do you go right. through that? You don't. Right. So what the system does is it'll take a video interview from everybody and then the system will decide who are the best people for the job. For, for the match, yeah. yeah. And I then, like that. It should be then, a dating thing too. Yeah. And then what will happen is mm -hmm. it will then, then tell the company, these are the people you should do face-to-face -face interviews with. I like with. it. Yeah. Good, yeah. yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's all, all of it is me. That's so know. cool. Okay. End of interview. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. and we're done. So um, this kind of stuff really fascinates me. So when, when I when I think about you know, we were talking about you writing books and stuff, yeah. uh, and 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 when we look at what you do for a living, I think you you really get people to question by what you talk like just like today's talk which I've, I've heard some of it before so forgive me yeah but you get people to really like think deeply about their own situation well i think what i am trying to do is get people to see what we've bought into and how deluded it is yeah all the stuff we think is real is such it a it's not so you silly. don't you don't say how deluded it is what you're saying when you say it is how deluded you are yeah but that, that's what you say to me. <laughs> right. And so I sit there going, oh, yeah. So I make, it's, it's, an, it's a process that makes people feel uncomfortable. So people resist me a lot. And I go deep, you know, into the institutions we live with, you know, all of them, all the labels, all the titles, all the things we've bought into with such a ferocity. And I, and I debunk them, you know, I deconstruct them. And that's my passion, you know, is to look at how we got here. Like that's the app said, like, historically, culturally, how do things come to be? How do we believe in what we believe in? You know, where do our ideas come from? And let's look at how they're all constructed by man. They're not divinely ordained. Nothing is a divine ordination. It's all been created by us out of some need and mostly out of fear. So when you realize that, then you have a choice to not buy into it anymore. You know, but we're all programmed by fear. And that's really what I talk about, how to enter a place of detachment from that f fury and furor of fear. Would you help me? Sure. If I asked you a couple of questions. Of course. Yeah? Okay. So... I you need you a lot of help. <laughs> so <would you> want... <laughs> I will help you speak, my dear. <laughs> so I, ha I, I, I was married when I was 26 years old for five years. I got divorced, but I had two children. Okay. So my daughters are now 17 and 20. My 20-year-old 20 is very much like me and her behaviors like mine, her ambitions very similar to mm -hmm. mine. My youngest is the complete opposite. She mm -hmm. has very little ambition by comparison. She just wants everyone to be happy. Mm -hmm. um, my eldest will take you down if you yeah. get in her way type yeah. of thing, all right? Um, I've been divorced now for 15 years. My ex-wife has been married for 13 years yeah. to somebody else, and still she drives me mad. Yeah, why? Um, why does she still get to you? Uh, hate, uh, uh, hating on me. Oh, she she, she hates on is stuff. driven bad mad by you. She, she she hates she doesn't like the fact that I'm successful. Oh, okay. Um, and even though we divorced in 2000 or yeah. whatever it was, 2004, yeah. um, and she got nearly everything because that's what happens in divorces mm. in England. You know, mm. there's a woman with children, mm. and so mm. I I had to start again. She has uh, enormous resentment for the success I had since. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I don't believe that the kids should be brought up the way that she brings them mm -hmm. up. And I believe that they should mm -hmm. be brought up the way I bring them up. And we've got different ways of parenting. Right, right. right. And again, right. <laughs> you're like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Just <laughs> and, another one. Yeah, same old story. Yeah, same old story, yeah. <laughs> and I'm remarried and I have a wife, Anna, and I've been married to her for uh, four years. We've been together seven years. Um, and uh, she's, she, she, comes from a, she comes from a very successful family. All right, her grandfather was the guy that took uh, Pepsi Cola to the Soviet Union 50 nice. years ago. And so they have an, an enormous family wealth. I don't come from that environment. I come from an environment where mum and dad went bankrupt when I was a kid and mum and dad had to struggle. They got divorced. Yeah. I've got a bunch of sisters and we just had to dig in mm -hmm. and, and, and fight. And so 
when I look at my situation and I, I think about other people that are listening and watching this podcast, um, it's not an unfamiliar story. Mm. We're not talking about something that's, you know, right. jazz hands. Um, but using using children as weapons is what I've found over the years mm -hmm. has been something that I've been a victim of. Mm -hmm. So my uh, ex-wife has, has used the children and mm -hmm. to some to, to lots of success with my youngest, to limited success with my eldest. Mm -hmm. My eldest is now almost almost worked out what mum's up to. Yeah. And so she can see through it now. Yeah. And so she's now like, no, I'm yeah. not I'm not playing I'm not getting caught in that game anymore. Yeah, yeah. Whereas my youngest is still wrapped up sure. in there. So when you see these types of situations, it's, it's, and I live overseas, they yeah. live in the UK. Mm -hmm. So and I, I go home every second weekend mm -hmm. or did until a few mm -hmm. years ago, every second weekend to see them. Mm -hmm. And so you want your kids um, to do well in life. We all want that, yeah? Right. And so I paid for them to go to a very expensive school. Right. It was on your learnings five or six years ago right. that I started to say, why am I sending my children to such an expensive school? <laughs> it's right. just for my ego, right. it's for my, right. my, my satisfaction. Guilt. It, guilt. Yeah, guilt, yeah. but it's me, it's me to say to the world, yes, my children go to mm. a very expensive school and it's very good and then yes, and you should know that right. type of thing. Right. People would say, what school do your kids go to? <laughs> oh, let me tell you what school, do you know what I mean? Right. And so when I look at that, I, I'm, uh, you may be completely aware of that. Yeah. And maybe I was too far down the road to pull them out of it. Sure. They've been in the same school for many years. Right. And my, own, my only one thing when they were young was, because I went to many schools, yeah. was I would like them to go to the same school all the way through. Yeah. Because I'd like them to have the stability. Sure. Because I didn't have that as a kid. Yeah. I was bullied quite a lot because I kept starting at new schools as we moved. And so I didn't, and I didn't really have a friendship group. I was, yeah. the, I was the loner a lot of the time. And yeah. I never wanted my kids to have that. Yeah. And so that was the only one thing that was important. The rest was completely ego driven. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk about university not being what it used to be and the values that it used to have. Right. My eldest has started university. Right. And I just found myself falling into the trap again. Yeah. What university did your daughter <laughs> go to? Yeah. yeah, she goes to University of Arts in Chelsea campus in London. Yeah. It's yeah. like, what have I done again? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. me feeding something that, that sure. satisfies me. 100%. Now, fortunately, she's very happy there. She's glad she's yeah. there. She's loving yeah. it. But I know, and I've got. But it's a pressure, right? Like, even when parents talk to you, the first thing they say, what does your child do? Uh -huh. Like they want to see the CV of the seven-year-old mm. and you feel like, oh my God, like what does my child do? And you feel the need to say that, oh, she's a top tennis player, surfer, or mountain climber. Like these parents put pressure on yeah. you, but then we succumb to it and then we perpetuate it because we do feed into it. So how do you break out of it, you know? That's the question. Okay. Well, that's Sorry I, I gave you this long-winded so, thing. That's what I teach, you know. Give us two minutes. Break. Give us a two-minute lesson on that. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a declaration you make in your life that you're not going to work out of the ego to the extent that others do. The ego is always going to be part of our existence because we were raised with this false sense of bravado and persona, the school, the achievement, the money, you know, so some part of it is so deeply conditioned, but we make a declaration to ourselves that, okay, I know it's there, it's a beast, but I'm going to try my best to move away from it. But every person has to make that decision for themselves because it's anti-mainstream. Mainstream says, what school did your kid go to? What does your kid do? You know, how pretty she is? And, you know, who's she in a relationship with? Is she's not married? You know, all these milestones that we've, be we've begun to identify ourselves by. So we have to move away from, from mainstream and be anti-mainstream and it's uncomfortable. But that's what it means to move away from the ego. And in terms of the parental alienation that you were talking about, that your spouse, ex-spouse put you through, well, you know, she had, she is not yet 
resolved within herself and she has her her ego is insecure by you and she feels threat threatened and intimidated and it's very difficult you know she probably feels you betrayed her and she's still holding on to that people hold on to stuff for a long time you know that's their ego to they hold on to protect themselves because they're actually in so much pain that it's easier to not like the other person than to deal with the pain she's actually in a lot of pain and she should grieve the loss versus attack the one she believes created the loss you know she, but it takes a lot of courage to do all this inner work and of course you use your children as pawns every parent is doing that uh, it takes an evolved person to not do that you know to move away from the ego brilliant okay you've answered that perfectly Talk to me about why people shouldn't be married forever. Well, I don't think they should or shouldn't. First, they should look at marriage as an institution and uh, not take it as an automatic given checkbox. They should really examine this institution. You know, marriage was created for a very specific purpose for mm -hmm. property control and property being women and children as mm -hmm. well. And uh, today we have to ask ourselves whether we can re-envision this idea of marriage. You know, does it need to be legal you know uh, is it divinely ordained you know people have bought into all this stuff that it doesn't exist and then if it doesn't last forever is it a failure you know so people are very tied up into these archaic definitions of marriage as they are of other things too success beauty achievement wealth uh, happiness you know all these are institutions that we have one idea of but there are a plethora of ways to look at it you know so marriage typically is looked at as that's it, you know, till death do you part. And uh, does it need to be a physical death or can it be the death of that phase or can death of that time? But people take it very literally. Mm. And anything that's uh, against that is a sham, a shame and a failure. Mm -hmm. And because of that, divorce is painful. Because we have those archaic understandings of marriage, your wife thought you guys should be married forever. He should, he should. And it should look a certain way. And therefore, when it ended, she couldn't let it go gracefully. I'm just projecting. Mm, but, you yes, know, yes. She, she couldn't let it just go gracefully, beautifully. If marriage is a communion of two loving people, then divorce should be the completion of those, that communion. It shouldn't be anything more than the completion of a communion, right? But it, it, the end of the communion means very typically the end of the love that brought you into the marriage. So how, where did the love go? I often ask people. Why is the love being lost? The communion can be completed, but why does the love have to go? Well, because he betrayed me or he rejected me or he cheated on me. I go, okay, but that's uh, uh, the completion of the communion. But why does the love have to go, right? But because we've equated love with the shoulds of marriage, which is longevity, loyalty, uh, and, you know, fidelity, and all these things equal love. But do these things equal love? You know, and mm. why does love need to be predicated on these conditions? You know? Right. You're from India originally. Mm -hmm. And I used to be many years ago, 30 years ago, I used to be a financial advisor. And that would mean I would sit down with people from different parts of the world right. um, and give them advice on their future. And lots of Indians and lots of Chinese used to say the following to me. Okay, how important it was for their child to go to a great university. Sure, you know yes, that one. This yes. is this is news you've heard a million times. To be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, all that stuff. And it was like, why? And what they taught me back then was, they essentially are, are our retirement income. 
<laughs> so we're going to provide them the best with our money, the so best university. So they can take care of me when so I grow older. So they can take me when we grow Yeah, all the people in India are shameless in saying that. They, they'll just say it. So, yeah. so you can take do care they, of do me. Do they still say it today? Well, my grandmother said it. I used to always say, why do you love me so much when I was young? You know, why are you so nice? She was like, don't worry, I'm only doing this so you take care of me when I grow older. It's just the way that they talk. But part of it is true. Yes. They invest because families live together. Uh-huh. Sons take care of the parents and they, they live in a joint family system, which is quite lovely, I think. It has its perks, but it also has its downsides. And so everyone lives together. So if the parents do invest in the son's education, the son typically, mm-hmm. then there's a payback, you know. So... Do you think, though, that in today's day and age... Well, let me ask you, okay? You're yeah. Indian. Mm-hmm. Would you like... you? And you've got kids? Yes. How many kids? I have one daughter. One daughter. Yeah. Okay. Do you want your daughter to provide for you when you're old? No, I never think of that. But today's mm. time is different, I think. Right. Because we now live in more nuclear, isolated systems, which, again, has its downsides and its perks. Um, but I think there's a greater self-reliance reliance now on ourselves as providing for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But in, the, in that system, the Indian system of, of even today, there's an interdependence, which I think is lovely, you know, and we do this for you, you do that for us. But it can become claustrophobic because it can become transactional. But a nuclear system, isolated family system, autonomous, lovely, you go on your way, we'll take care of ourselves. Lovely in that respect, but claustrophobic in another respect. It can get isolating. It can get, uh, you know, lack of interdependence can also lead to loneliness and a sense of, you know, not being part of a community. But do we not preach happiness? Do we, not, do we not preach happiness? Do we not say, look, the most important thing in life is to be happy and feel happy. Right. And if, if I'm a 19-year-old kid and mum and dad are going to pay for my university right. and I'm going to study something that I'm really passionate about, so my daughter's studying art. Right. Who knows where that's going to right. take you, yeah? Right. Does it, is that going to take a right. down? So, so- you're, you're coming from the mentality that each person follows their sovereign desires and sovereign spirit. I believe that too. Uh, but the Indian system is more, you know, more about the we collective than the I. So sons owe the parents and it's quite rigid in its hierarchy, you know, and now things are changing, you know, times are changing. And now we we are letting our children go and uh, become less conditional. But in, in more traditional cultures, there's a there's a very clear transaction between parents and children. I do this for you and now you owe me this. Interesting. Know? Okay. Entrepreneurship. You're here at the Sharjah Entrepreneur Festival. So yeah. you're, you're at an entrepreneur festival. Yeah. Um, I, I, I coach entrepreneurs. Yeah. I find it a really groovy word nowadays that when I was young used to be called yeah. uh, one man band or he's <laughs> <laughs> a soul trader and stuff like that. And now it became sexy to be an entrepreneur. And yeah. do you know what? I find that really disappointing because I think being an entrepreneur is a really tough yeah. environment to be Very in. Very tough. You move away from the security yes. of having a steady yeah. salary. Not everyone and... can become one. Everyone no. wants to become one. Yeah. But it's hell on wheels because it's risky. It's daring. You're living in the unknown. You don't have anyone to fall back on to give you a paycheck. You have to generate. Mm. And that's very difficult. And it's not only you. Maybe it's your wife and your kids you've got to be responsible yeah, for. Yeah, it's not easy. Day. Yeah, And you Huge never know when the next paycheck is coming from. Yeah. Anxiety. Yes. Okay. Depression. Oh, completely. Okay. Abandonment issues. Yeah. Loneliness. Yeah. Well, it's scary. It's a scary place to be because you're not working in an environment, you know, where everyone's working in a company and you clock yeah. in and you clock out. There's some comfort there. Yes, there's a loss of soul perhaps, but there's comfort. Mm. But this, you're out on your own. It's the jungle and you have to kind of make your way. You know, it Why takes a particular kind of person to be an entrepreneur and be a successful one of that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, most fail 
in oh. fairness, most people that, as, as right. entrepreneurs, before it was called entrepreneurs and when it was called small yeah. business owner, yeah. they failed as well. So sure. the title didn't mean the success rate got better or worse. <laughs> right. People failed and people still to this day fail. And, and yeah. whether that's um, personality issues, whether they're, mm. they're, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to solve a problem that they can't fix, maybe there's more competition, yeah. a million things, yeah. bad management of cash flow, whatever yeah. it may be. How, do, you, do you work with people? I mean, you're here at the Entrepreneur yeah. Festival. Do you, do you understand that dynamic? Do you, do, you, do you dig deep into there and try and understand the psychology that people are buying into themselves in that, that type of process? Yeah, I, I think I do help people, if they want to be entrepreneurs, how to break down the obstacles that are stopping them from becoming an entrepreneur in the true sense. The risk taker, the rebel, the creative right? And, and also the one who manages and organizes it all. So I do help people to break down the barriers. And I show them if they first, if they are a match or not, you know, not everyone can do this. So it's coming to terms and out of denial of whether you are even an entrepreneur, you know, it's not for everybody. But would they come to you after they're realizing it's tough? Or do they yeah. come to you before they start? Because that's the well, best time, many, isn't it? Many come to me with a vision and a fantasy. Okay. And it's all based on just, a, you know, a and dream, a lock. So my first step, and even if they've tried it, uh, and even if they're doing well but want to do better, my first job is to evaluate with them how good a match is it for you in your current life. It may have been great 10 years ago, but now you have two children. Now you're 10 years older. Is it still a good match for you? You know, we can change. We can do entrepreneurship, go back to working in a company, come back. It's okay. You're not just an entrepreneur for the rest of your life. You can create a lifestyle that matches. Today it matches, tomorrow it may not match. So I help them create, a, understand if they're a match. And then if they do, if we are kind of a match, then why are we not overcoming these obstacles and then we go down the obstacles and most of them have to do with uh, honing believing in yourself honing in in your talent and then really uh, you know being bold-faced and unashamed and unabashed to go out there it's a lot of um, putting yourself out there that people are terrified of because you will be rejected you know are you an entrepreneur I I mean I I, I, I find the word boring frankly I don't find a sizzle to it but what, yeah, technically okay. I am. You, know? you, you have to make your own living. You've got no I fixed am, salary. I am, I am, you, I am, you, I am. I don't like to define myself as that, but do, yes. Do you find that can be lonely for you? Yeah, um, because a lot of my work has to do with community. I'm, I'm never feeling lonely and I'm contributing to people's lives and I'm embedded in so many communities. But is it lonely making? Is it an alone process? Yes, because you're the decider. You're the head. You're the... You know, there's no one holding your hand, but I love it because it has forced me to grow up. And I never thought 10 years ago I could be so grown up. You know, yeah. I can, I have to look at the losses. I have to, but I'm in charge of the profit. You know, it's uh, the perk and the, I love it because it's really allowed me to uh, become abundant in my mindset and neutralize the fear around money. And uh, because it's up and down, right? As an entrepreneur, there's nothing fixed. So I've really learned to befriend money, especially the lack of money, like mm -hmm. befriend that state mm -hmm. and be as loving to it as if you had it. That's been the biggest lesson that I have to teach people because that's the f that's another fear people have. That's killer. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Because when the money goes down, that's it. They want to check out. You know, they don't want to do this anymore. And so passion is vagrant and conditional based on the money they have. And I have to teach them to separate the money from the passion. Money is important, but you can't, you can't tie in. Like I said, love and marriage shouldn't be tied together. Yeah. 
passion and, and income shouldn't be tied together. And it's very difficult, difficult for people to un-extricate it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's really interesting. Do, do you have a coach? No, do I, I don't have a coach. So when it comes to managing finance and whatnot, you're the kind of person that will sit and study it yourself? And, yeah, I'm and... really basic though. I'm like in out kind of person. I don't build. I just, my way of making money is to generate service. So I'm always thinking, and not because I'm some Mother Teresa, it's just creative for me, you know? Mm -hmm. I get a high from ser serving people. And so it's selfish, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not doing it out of some self. It gives me a direct hit. Now what to do? That's where I get my high from. But I get la lauded for it as if I'm selfless. But no, I'm getting genuine. It's like pleasure, pleasure, pleasure for me. Yeah. Um, so I never claim to be some martyr, but I just like to be creative. You know, that's what I love. So writing is creative for me. Teaching is creative for me. I'm always thinking of ways that I can help people and create courses. And so then money comes as a byproduct. And then I don't interfere with money too much. You know, I, I'm not about like, putting it in the stock market, watching it grow, watching it. I just let it do its thing. You know, I, I can't be bothered beyond a yeah. point because it doesn't interest me because money yeah. is flow. It comes in, it goes out. Mm -hmm. I'm not chasing it. I'm not keeping it. I'm not. But there have been times that I've been alone and lonely and scared, um, you know, as the only one who's making it in, at that point in time. I've been scared. Mm, good. You mentioned the fact that um, uh, you said, because uh, I, I I feel it myself as well. Yeah. You know, you sit there and you're in business and you feel that um, money flows. And I think that when people get wrapped up around the meaning of uh -huh. money, okay, I think that's a really important thing to, to make sure you're aware of. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the selfishness around when you give. Yeah. I have a charity that I work yeah. with. And they take children from the slums of Bangladesh and yeah. they bring them here and they educate them. Yeah. And the, the lady that does that has has done remarkable in getting 600 kids out of the slums and educated internationally. It's wonderful, yeah? And I, I got them on stage at an event at the weekend where they could talk in front of 2,000 people and tell their story so wow. that they could raise awareness. And I stood at the side of the stage crying. And they're, they, they're so grateful to me for what I've done. And yeah. I said to them, I said, this is, this is all about, this is yeah, me. Yeah. This is all me. This right. feeling that you give me yeah, yeah. is all about yeah, me. Yeah. And uh, they, don't, they, they don't see that. But yeah. so I completely identify yeah. with that selfishness aspect. Completely. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it's it? It's a greedy, selfish part of me <laughs> that wants to feel yeah. useful. Yeah. And but, that's oh, why yeah. I do my work. So it, it comes across as so lovely and selfless. But I, I'm, I out my greed right away. I am, I am hungry, not for validation, but to feel like I've been useful. To feel like, what well, recognition? I don't know. Yeah, it could be. But I need, if, so if somebody tells me that what I said helped them, oh, that's like the drug to me. Or what I said helped change their life, that's what yeah. I'm looking for. So when you get an email like that yeah, or a message that like that? that makes me feel like, okay, I will do this again. So that's like my drug, I'm addicted to it. Now I wanna do more. I wanna help more people. I don't pay attention to their name. I don't even care what they're really saying to me. I just care what impact it's had. And I go, okay, this is important. I need to keep doing that it. That is really honest. That yeah. is, I'm not paying attention to their name. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, no, <laughs> but that's, that's yeah. really honest of you yeah. to say that. Yeah. Because most people wouldn't wouldn't say that. They'd yeah. say they that you know the the when someone sends me an email and it says I've changed their life, it makes me go yeah, you know, and it, yeah. I accelerate again. Yeah. But not yeah, not being really honest. It's like yeah. I, the feeling that those words between the dear Spencer and the and the kind regards. Yeah, but it's all it's not about me and it's not about them. It's about what happened alchemically between the two of us 
that charges me. Something happened between my energy and their energy and something worked. That's what I run after. You know, and so when people don't like me, I invite them, you know, then I get a greater charge, you know, because I'm going to now make something out of this mess, you know. And so I always invite people to come engage in a dialogue with me. Tell me why you were so offended by me. Tell me and we'll deconstruct it. You know, I take it as a challenge. I can't say I adore that process, but I do now in my life take it as a challenge. You know, the first the first hit of when somebody says, you know, oh, Dr. Shafari, that was baloney, that was rubbish, that was terrible, you know, you're the devil or whatever. At first, I don't like it, I have to say. Uh -huh. But now I've learned to, again, see the jewel that is possible here and not pay attention to the words. But if that person is willing, let's let's see if we can transform. Maybe you will transform me or maybe I'll transform you. But let's see, let's go deeper than just calling me some names, you know. Mm -hmm. But very few people rise up to the invitation. But I do get one out of every 10 people who don't like me. One will come and we'll deconstruct it and, and we'll go to a deeper place. Wow. Yeah. And I'll see my ego. They'll see their ego. And very often I'll see my ego. Good. You know, how I said something and they'll teach me how I can say it in a more compassionate way. And then they'll see their ego about how they got bruised and why they got bruised. You know, they, they thought I was their mother or they projected some stuff onto me. So it'll be a really useful process. Wow. Okay, I know you've got a flight to catch, so <laughs> I won't take too much of your time. One yeah, more question sure. before we finish. Um, when, when, when you listen to people, yeah. uh, who, who are the people that inspire you? In my own life? In your own life. Yeah. Who are the people out there that, that either you consume or you read? Uh, yeah. Who inspires you? Well, typically people who uh, meditate and meditation teachers and Eastern Buddhist philosophy teachers, you know, mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the Buddhist approach to life uh, because the Buddha understood that life is to be lived in the present. He understood life is impermanent. He understood that everything is interdependent. I mean, he was just a genius. It was know? the only religion, Buddhism. Not a religion. Okay, well, when I, I, I lived in the Far East, I lived in Thailand. Yeah. For tax purposes, maybe, but no, not, <laughs> not, the Buddha didn't espouse a god. There was no god. There was only the Buddha within, the, the awakening within, the god within, you know. There's a saying in Buddhism, if you see the Buddha on the outside, or the god, you know, kill it, because it's an illusion. The Buddha really taught uh, inner awakening, the liberation of the mind from its own attachments. He really just taught meditation and how to liberate the the mind from its shackles and the reason why we suffer is because we attach to things and we think that those identities those things those possessions are us you know it's very much what i teach now it's just i told you when i began meditating at 21 that formed the bedrock of my entire perspective every time i run i'm going to think about this conversation that we've had yeah, now, just to take yeah. me back there sure thank you so thank so you much for having i really me. appreciate you having of come course. on the show well there you go i hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the spencer lodge podcast i hope you've enjoyed our recent guest dr shafali if you don't enjoy this guest then you should never subscribe to anything i ever do because it's really just not worth it but if you did enjoy it then don't forget to subscribe come on i know you're watching it and what you tell your friends as well because they need to subscribe too